This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've lived and worked in Fayetteville, Arkansas since 1993, so that's quite a long time. I started self-work five years ago in order to extend the walls of my practice to those of you who might already be in therapy and you're just really interested in hearing a different perspective, to those of you who've just been diagnosed with something and you're concerned, you're looking for information, or maybe you have a relationship problem that you're struggling with, but also to a third group, to those of you who might tell your friends, oh, I'd never darken the door of a therapist, but you're just curious enough or unhappy enough to listen to self-work. So thanks so much for being here. In today's episode, sponsored by Athletic Greens, I want to talk about borderline personality disorder, but in a different way than I have before on self-work. I've mostly talked about what it's like to try to love someone with a serious personality disorder, like narcissism or borderline personality. But today I want to talk about what it's like to experience borderline traits. And we'll find out some of the differences between bipolar disorder and borderline personality disorder, and they're often confused. We'll also focus on how describing someone's actions as manipulative or cunning will prevent them from getting the understanding, care, and treatment they need, no matter what the issue. And that often happens with borderline personality. Even the term personality disorder can be a hurdle, not only to people, but to treating professionals, because they're a label. And I've been turned off when I hear other professionals label someone with a personality disorder to justify why treatment isn't going well. I understand respect that some problems are harder to treat than others, but blame doesn't clear up the situation. The listener voicemail for today comes from a woman who describes that she has a wonderful life, but that she's troubled or haunted or saddened or feels guilty, that's a little unclear, for not loving her mother. And frankly, not even liking her. She feels as if she can't go forward in her life until she figures this out or processes it somehow. And so we'll talk about her question, and I'll try to answer as best I can. So sit back and relax for the 259th episode of Self Work. I'm not a huge fan of labels, of diagnosing someone by using a list of criteria, and then if the patient meets them, then I hand out a diagnosis. Sometimes it can feel like a label. It's necessary because of insurance coverage, and sometimes the process of figuring out a diagnosis can clear up something that's maybe mystifying. Think of medical shows like Howl's, where Dr. Howl's himself figures out the root cause of someone's illness instead of what everyone initially thought, and he saves lives week after week. But sometimes changing the way you look at something can change what you see, right? And that can happen in mental illness as well as medical issues. But other times, when diagnosis can be used as a harmful label, it can be a problem. I've said before that I remember being called the rotator cuff in bed three right before my shoulder surgery, and I didn't like it. I understood that it was probably easier for the nurses. They don't have to remember names and even more efficient, but it felt a little dehumanizing. 
in the mental field, I have panic attacks. But I wouldn't want to be termed the panic attack, like someone might be called who had borderline personality disorder. Oh, the borderline. How degrading is that? But because of dramatization such as fatal attraction, where someone with borderline personality disorder was depicted as dangerous and even murderous, people can pigeonhole borderlines. And we've got to remember that everything is on a spectrum. So in today's episode, I want to tell you about a couple of people I've seen who have met criteria for borderline personality disorder, but I want to talk about how they experienced the world. So first, there was a woman that I treated years ago for quite some time. She did really great work, but I'll never forget she told me one day, it's like I have a black hole in my soul. I constantly try to fill it up, but nothing really works. She looked so sad when she said this. I was treating her for several issues. Anorexia was one, and then major severe recurrent depression with multiple self-harm habits and frequent suicidal gestures. Now, again, she did really great work, and a lot of that cleared up. I diagnosed her as struggling with borderline personality disorder. But I want you to hear how a mental health professional can use a diagnosis like borderline to guide their approach to treatment. The way it helped me to think about her was to consider that many of her struggles fell into the rubric of borderline. It helped me know that I needed to trace her self-destructiveness in adulthood to childhood trauma. It helped me see more clearly when what could be very rational thinking turned on a dime and became irrational. It helped me understand her desperation and felt need to hurt herself as she carried intense shame for things that had happened to her, not that she'd created. It also helped me remember that our therapeutic relationship might be challenging at times, but ultimately could be very healing for her. What do I mean by a challenging relationship? Her fear of abandonment and sensitivity to needing affirmation could be tricky. For example, she used to leave me voicemail messages. She'd say, call me back if you want to. Now, what's the big deal about that? The issue here is, if I called back, I must want to, rather than honoring an agreement I had with her and all my patients. It helped her feel more secure, even special. But if I took some time to answer, then her conclusion must be that I didn't want to call her back, and she'd feel rejected and might even struggle with self-harm. So what did I do? Because she left me these messages several times. I talked to her about them, and what that request or what that comment reflected. Now, I could have easily labeled it as something like, well, that's manipulative, but what good would that do for her? Nothing. She was expressing her insecurity, and I needed to acknowledge that and understand it. This patient definitely had experienced trauma in her background, a harshly critical dad who was a community leader, a mom who was greatly loved and admired in that same community, but who at home was extremely controlling and demanding. Basically, the external appearance of this patient's world as a child had nothing to do with what was going on in reality, and she was blamed for everything. Another patient I saw sat down on my couch, and almost the first thing she said was, I'm a high-functioning borderline. (laughs) She'd seen several therapists and had read extensively about borderline traits. She was referring to the spectrum of borderline, that some people function better with it, or more normally, whatever that is, than others. There are lots of categorizations or types of borderline out there. And if you want more information on that, actually, there are links in episode 86, and I talked about it in that episode. 
This patient, let's call her Jean, had begun dating someone, and she told me, that's when my problems always start. As long as I'm by myself or hanging out with friends, I do great. But when I'm trying to love and be loved, I'm a mess. So what did Jean mean by that? She told me that she'd grown to understand that her emotional responses to perceived rejection were way too dramatic. But it was as if she couldn't get her heart to listen to her head. The phone wouldn't ring or there would be no voicemail. This was before texting. And she'd literally fall apart. Literally, she would fall to the ground. So we worked on mantras and she got a DBT workbook to help. She really did quite well in therapy. What was especially important was when we talked about the poor fit between herself and her mom. There'd been a lot of misunderstandings through the years and she convinced herself that her mother hated her. That wasn't the case. There's that sense of rejection and abandonment. But her mind would fixate on that. She continued to work through those things and use more rational thinking and gradually became able to be in a relationship with both her boyfriend and eventual husband and her mom. She used medication to help. Exercise was essential. And toward the end of treatment, she became a mom. She needed lots of reassurance that her relationship with her child was normal. She actually made really wonderful progress. You can probably hear in Jean's story in my first patients that self-soothing was a skill that needed to be learned and is almost always a struggle with this kind of continual emotional upheaval. Knowing you're lovable, claiming you are, claiming your value, that you're enough can be hard. We're going to hear in a minute from the author of the new book talking about BPD or Borderline Personality Disorder. We're going to identify the actual symptoms of borderline, and we're going to talk about how it's different from bipolar disorder. But first, here's a message from Athletic Greens. I've been talking to y'all about Athletic Greens now for a few months as they're our newest sponsor here at Self Work, but they have a new name and spirit. It's AG1. Just like with Athletic Greens, you take one tasty scoop of AG1 that contains 75 vitamins, that's 75 minerals and whole food sourced ingredients, which include a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more. But Athletic Greens 1 has some really exciting news about the directions they're taking as a company, and I'm proud to tell you about them. Last year, they joined the How to Recycle program. This initiative tells you exactly how to dispose of your products and what goes where. Now, How to Recycle has evaluated all of AG's product packaging, and from their feedback, the company's been able to increase the recyclability of their products, reduce the amount of plastic they're using, and increase their use of recycled content. And they're proud to announce that they've officially committed to become climate-neutral certified and are hard at work looking at all of their 2020 emissions. And last but not least, since Athletic Greens One believes that access to nutrition is a fundamental human right, they're excited to announce a new partnership with No Kid Hungry to help serve nutritious meals to children across the United States. They've committed to donating 10 cents for every Athletic Greens order to No Kids Hungry for an entire year. So to make your ordering easy, Athletic Greens will give you an immune-supporting free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2, which I've learned actually must be taken together to be effective, D3 and K, and I take that every morning, with five free travel packs with your first purchase. Since you're a listener here at SelfWork, and the code is athleticgreens.com slash selfwork. 
Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash self-work to take control of your health and to give Athletic Greens One a try. Blogger and author from the UK, Rosie Cappuccino, just published a book on having borderline issues, and the link is in the show notes. I pulled this quote from her blog, talking about BPD, and that link is also in the show notes. She says, you're not too much, you're not too emotional, you're not too sensitive, you're not too difficult, you're not unlovable. I'm still quoting Rosie. It took me a long time to believe it, and even now from time to time, I still have moments when panic rises and I feel like nobody in the world could love me. I take a breath and ground myself in my immediate surroundings. Then I remind myself that I've been through a lot in life, some of it traumatic, which makes me feel too much and unlovable sometimes. I tell myself this is not true. Before I met my partner, I thought nobody could ever love me for who I am. Again, I think about what my patient told me about the black hole in her soul. Now back to Rosie. I feared that my BPD, with all my panic attacks, crying, anxious thoughts, therapy sessions, and psychiatry appointments, would make me unattractive to any potential partners. Worse than that, I feared it would disgust, frighten, or embarrass them. I also didn't know how I would cope with that happening. Part of me thought I needed to wait and start dating when my BPD was quote-unquote better, but I didn't know when better would come or if it would ever come. The other part of me knew that I shouldn't have to deprive myself of a chance at love, something I wanted, because I had mental health problems. I loved Rosie talking about this in her blog because I see this and hear this all the time. I've got BPD or I struggle with borderline traits. And I just don't know if I'm even lovable. Now, I've written about how hard it is to love someone with borderline frequently, and it can be, especially if their own insight into and awareness of what's wrong is limited. The whole point of the term personality disorder is defined by problems in relationships. But there are also a lot of people with these traits who are quite aware of how much their moods fluctuate And they're working very hard to center themselves so they can both love and be loved well. All right, let's take a second to go over exactly what these traits are. Here's a list from the Mayo Clinic, and I've added a little bit too. First one, impulsive and risky behavior, such as having unsafe sex, gambling, or binge eating. I really like to think of this as impulsive behavior, and it's often self-destructive. Number two, unstable or fragile self-image. Okay. If you remember a couple of episodes again, we talked about the solid sense of self. And that's what this is talking about, an unstable or fragile self-image. Here's a quote from the book, I Hate You, Don't Leave Me, which is a classic book on borderline personality disorder. The author state, the borderline shifts her personality like a rotating kaleidoscope, rearranging the fragmented glass of her being into different formations. Like a chameleon, she transforms herself into any shape that she imagines will please the viewer. Her emotions govern all her actions. She's terrified of abandonment and highly sensitive to not feeling understood. So that's what it means to have an unstable or fragile self-image. Basically, you don't know maybe from hour to hour, certainly not from day to day, 
who you're going to wake up feeling like. Now, I don't mean like in dissociative identity disorder where you have a multiple personality. What I mean is where your emotions are going to lead you, how intense they're going to be. And just think how frightening and disruptive that would be. Number three, unstable and intense relationships. And then I added, and they have little empathy toward how their behavior may affect others and lack of insight into their impact on others. An example of that, a young woman I had suggested hospitalization to, residential treatment, and she'd gone, she checked herself out AMA, which means against medical advice, because she hated the place, because I think they were actually trying to get her to understand the impact of her actions, and she had many, many struggles with rage. And she came in for one session and just exploded at me and called me names, and then she left the session in a huff, and she called me back in about three weeks and didn't apologize, didn't say anything about it, just wanting another session. I did meet with her again, but I told her that kind of behavior could not go on. Okay, here's the fourth one. Up and down moods, often as a reaction to interpersonal stress. So things that are happening between herself or himself, mostly women though, and others are what are so stressful that she could either get very, very depressed, very, very angry, whatever. Number five is suicidal behavior or threats of self-injury or actual self-harm. I've had people bang their heads up against walls. I've had people burn themselves Also, cutting can be very normal. The next one is intense fear of being alone or abandoned. And they'll easily sense or read rejection into situations, kind of like the call me back if you want to. The next is ongoing feelings of emptiness. Again, that black hole. Frequent intense displays of anger. This is, again, not true of everyone. And then stress-related paranoia that comes and goes. Again, not true of everyone. So again, those are... The most primary and common traits of borderline personality disorder, someone could express all of them. It's truly on a spectrum. Also, borderline is often confused with bipolar disorder, which is also characterized by fluctuating moods. It can also be confusing because someone is often diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and then borderline features become more apparent during treatment. So, I found an article from the New York Presbyterian Hospital that I thought made these distinctions pretty well. But I'll say that it's often not quite as cut and dried as this may seem. But here we go. Here's the quote from their article. When a person with bipolar disorder is not in a manic or depressive episode, so when they're not real high or low, they demonstrate stability that the borderline personality does not show. If a bipolar person is between episodes, they can function pretty well in the world. They can have in-depth relationships that might be disturbed by their periods of illness, but when they are not experiencing episodes, they can have a stability that you do not see in the borderline. Bipolar disorder is more rooted in the biology of the nervous system and is more responsive to medication. Borderline strongly involves the psychological level of the mind, the way meaning is generated, in addition to the biology of the brain and nervous system. So they both have some roots in biology, but a borderline may have more trouble with interpretation, the way their mind is interpreting things. The mood swings of bipolar disorder are more random and less related to events than those of borderline swings. 
Those with bipolar might have a hair-trigger kind of response during an episode, whereas the borderline person has a hair-trigger response almost all of the time. Now, again, that's on a spectrum. What I want to stress is that these mentions of disturbance are often the focus of treatment. But with techniques like dialectical behavior therapy, which teaches how to use the mind to manage emotion, great progress can be made. Not for all. Some people with those black holes in their soul fight constantly with the very people who are trying to love them and help them, as they either continue making chaotic decisions, or they struggle to see themselves or their impact with any kind of accuracy. But I want to make sure I stress this point. Living with an emotional hurricane inside of you day in and day out is no party. Having borderline personality disorder can be an agonizing existence. Unrecognized and untreated, it can lead to misery. As one by one, she wears out the people who are trying to love or help her. Now, before we stop, I want to talk for a minute about how the label of borderline can even negatively influence their treatment by professionals. I found this article in the Huffington Post from Great Britain, actually, by a man named Dr. J. Watts. In the UK, there are daily examples of the damaging effects of the idea personality disorder. People presenting with self-harm are told, it's your choice to die, there's nothing we can do. When at the moment, someone needs to believe that for them, their life can still be worth living and offer the smallest slither of hope. Women with self-harm injuries are not judged worthy of treatment because they are self-inflicted. We do not need to be restricted by a seeming choice between an illness model or an attribution to a personality flaw. We can be capable, surely, of recognizing that problems lie on a continuum and that everyone deserves support, care, and treatment. Perhaps even more so if we can truly acknowledge the consistent association between childhood abuse, neglect, and trauma with the problematic label of personality disorder. Actually, I love what Dr. Caroline Leaf said in our conversation in episode 256. You don't have mental illness, she said. So often it's the result of things or experiences that have happened to you, and your body and mind and brain are trying to process it. Yes, there can be some genetic influence, sure, but trauma has long been assigned a back seat in the psychiatric world. Yet I, as a clinician, know that that kind of damage can result in many disordered-looking symptoms. So my strong belief is that we all need to understand that trauma can be underneath problems with trust, with self-esteem, with control, with anger, even rage, certainly depression and anxiety. And hopefully we can have more compassion for those who are struggling with any kind of personality disorder. The listener email presents a problem that many of you may have. What do you think you'd say if someone said they didn't like their mother? Hi, Dr. Rutherford. Never in one zillion years did I think I'd send anything to you or anyone. But what is it like when you have like everything you've ever wished for? I have it all. I am a mommy and a teacher and I love my life. Like I have a great life period. But the secret is, I have always not liked my mom. I honor her because I am a recovering Catholic, but I don't love her. I really feel it's holding me back from where I am to go next. 
my chapter, but no, I don't love her. I don't like her. I don't respect her. I hold her responsible for so many wrongdoings in my life. And um, this might not even be your thing. For those of you who are parents, you know that parenting may be one of the hardest things to do. Your own trauma can get in your way of doing a good job or a good enough job, as I like to think about it. You can try so hard to not be like your own parent that you overcorrect. There's a lot of ambiguity in parenting. But this said, this listener seems to have a lot of mixed emotions about not loving her mother. She describes a life that's happy and fulfilling, and her mother doesn't seem to be at all a part of that happiness. I couldn't tell how she was feeling exactly, but it sounds as if she does feel an absence of something that she knows other people have, and that is love for her mom. I want to give some reassurance here. Trust, love, caring is earned. Parents don't have to be perfect, but they have to be good enough, as I said before, to build the kind of relationship with a child where felt love is the natural outcome of that giving and care. How many times have I heard, oh, I feel it's my duty to take care of my dad or my mom, but I don't love them. So that could be a huge struggle. I feel as if this listener may be asking, is it okay that I don't feel love for my mom or even like her? My answer is this. It's sad you don't, but you're not wrong for that feeling. It doesn't sound like you're angry or blaming your mom. You only say you hold her responsible, which you probably should, and then you don't admire her as a person. It may be hard for you when you hear others talk lovingly about their moms, but you've gone ahead and built a good life despite the absence of those feelings. But then she also says she's struggling to move on to her next stage. I would wonder if this listener has actually connected with her grief. It's not feeling sorry for yourself or self-pity to grieve. Self-pity is paralyzing. Grieving helps you move forward. And actually, the time that she writes this could also be very important. She's parenting her own children. What I have found in my work is that feelings about not being parented well are more likely to emerge as you parent your own children. I even had a woman once not even remember that she'd been sexually abused until her daughter became the age she was when it began. So often you're offering your children something you didn't receive. And grief can bring with it sadness or many other feelings that can be worked through and then let go. So good luck to her and to any of you who might be facing this same dilemma. I'm so glad you were here today. I appreciate more than you know you tuning in every week and passing self-work on to your friends and family who might enjoy it letting them know that self-work has helped you. You're my best marketers. (laughs) Really appreciate that. Perfectly Hidden Depression can be found at your bookstore or anywhere where you might buy books. There's an e-book, an audio book, and a paperback. I also want to remind you that I'm starting a new podcast over on Fireside Chat. And if you want to actually interact with me and be a part of that podcast, go to firesidechat.com slash Margaret Rutherford, and you can request access to Fireside. Now, you have to have an iPhone for this right now, but they're working on developing one for Android. Again, it's firesidechat.com slash 
Margaret Rutherford. I'd love to have you there. Right now, I'm doing them on Wednesday morning, Central Standard Time, around 11 o'clock. But then you can also replay them. And Fireside has so many people on it who are creators that I'm sure you would enjoy as well. Deepak Chopra is now on. They've got some really wonderful creators and speakers. And you can talk with them yourself. That's what's incredible. But thank you for being here on the Self Work Podcast today. Take very, very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.